You can see the, the title of this sermon here this morning is Resurrection Details and Why They Matter. We're going to talk about some of the details of the resurrection and hopefully you will leave here this morning understanding why this is so important, why this matters. You know, every year around this time, there are people who come out with doubts about the resurrection of Christ. The skeptics and the critics, the liberal theologians and the atheists, they want people to believe that there was no such thing as the resurrection of Jesus. But this isn't new. It's not a new thing. That's just happening in our day. In fact, this has been going on for 2,000 years. Take your Bibles and open them to the book of Acts. Acts chapter 25. And as you're turning there, let me help just set the scene for you here in Acts 25 and what is taking place. In Acts 25, Paul has been under house arrest for two years in Caesarea. And he's awaiting his trip to Rome where he will appeal his case to Caesar. He's appealing his case. He's he's under house arrest. He's been there for two years in Caesarea. While Paul was there under house arrest in Caesarea, a man named Festus became the new governor at that time in Caesarea. He took over the job as governor. He's now the new governor. And he had heard about Paul's case and was wondering why Paul was on house arrest. So he begins to investigate. He wants to understand, why is this man Paul on house arrest? He investigates. He even went to Jerusalem to investigate the charges that were brought against Paul. Well, at this time, because Festus is the new governor in Caesarea, King Agrippa and his sister Bernice arrive at Caesarea to pay their respects to this new governor, Festus. So they arrive in town. And they come and they want to pay their respects to Festus, who was taken over as the new governor. King Agrippa, he arrives, and King Agrippa is an expert in the Jewish law. He's an expert in the Jewish law. And so, Festus wants Agrippa to hear what this case is all about. Why this Jewish man is under house arrest and has been there for two years. So King Agrippa and Festus, they begin to have a conversation with themselves. One commentator comments on this section here in Acts 25, and he calls it shop talk among two rulers. This is essentially shop talk amongst these two rulers, King Agrippa and Festus, who is the new governor. Notice what Festus says to Agrippa in verse 17. Look at Acts 25 and verse 17. It says this, So after they had assembled here, I did not delay. 
This is Festus talking. I did not delay, but on the next day took my seat on the tribunal and ordered the man, that is Paul, to be brought before me. When the accusers stood up, that would be the Jewish leaders who were bringing accusations against Paul, they began bringing charges against him, not of such crimes as I was expecting, but they simply had some points of disagreement with him about their own religion and about a dead man, Jesus, whom Paul asserted to be alive. What was the issue that was going on here? What was this all about? It was all about the resurrection of Jesus. This is the whole issue. You see, the the Jews were fine acknowledging the death of Jesus. They were okay with that. In fact, they knew that he had been crucified on a cross on that Good Friday. But the issue here was the resurrection. The Jews did not believe in the resurrection of Christ. And the same thing is happening today. Skeptics, unbelievers who do not believe in the resurrection of Christ. In fact, listen to what one author wrote in a magazine called UU World, which is published by the Unitarian Universalist Association. Here's what the author says. For all kinds of reasons, like many modern people, So he wants to bring all the modern people in. This is what modern people believe. For all kinds of reasons, like many modern people, I simply cannot believe in the physical resurrection of the individual man, Jesus. Even if I wanted so to believe, I don't think it would be possible because I really do understand the world to be of a wholly different nature from that understood by the gospel writers and St. Paul. He goes on and he says this, To put it bluntly, I think it can clearly be shown that they were utterly mistaken and consequently their accounts of what they believed occurred are false. This is still being taught today. We saw it back in Acts chapter 25 in Paul's day and yet it's still going on even to this day. There are skeptics and unbelievers who doubt the resurrection of Jesus. This author in the UU World magazine, he thinks that the authors of the Gospels were mistaken in their accounts and that their accounts were false. He thinks they're false. Another argument that you will hear from critics is that the Gospel accounts don't all line up. You have four different Gospels, and all of the Gospel accounts don't line up. Now, let me ask you, do all four of the Gospel accounts line up word for word? No, they don't. They don't line up word for word. Why? Well, there are some differences in the, account, in the accounts of the four gospel writers because they didn't all sit down and write their gospels together and just write line by line. What do you have? Well, I've got this. Oh, next line. Well, I've got this. What do you have? Write it down. 
They didn't do that. That's not how they wrote their letters, their accounts. They didn't use some other random source to copy their material from either. You'll hear this from liberal theologians. There's some Q source that's out there that they used in order to write down their accounts. It's not true. Nobody's ever found it. It's what liberal theologians make up to try and sound smart. But they didn't use some random source to copy their material from. They didn't all sit down and write out their accounts or copy them word for word. There are some differences in their accounts because under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, each gospel writer emphasized different themes from the life of Christ. And they gave their viewpoint of their accounts. Or as Luke did, he compiled his letter from accounts of eyewitnesses. That's what Luke did. And so there are differences. Not in that somebody is writing truth and another is writing untruth. No, all of it is true. Everything that they have written down is true, but there's different vantages, different viewpoints in which they're writing from. Now think about this. If you walked into a bank and you witnessed a bank robbery, who are the police going to interview? You? Other customers who were there? The bank tellers who were there? Maybe passerbyers, somebody walking by? They would interview them. And will every one of you come up with the exact same story? No, you won't. It won't be word for word. Not word for word, there will be some details that you remember that another customer doesn't remember, right? There will be some details that the bank teller gives that will be different from yours because the bank teller works at the bank and they know the ins and outs of the building. You might say, well, I saw this guy go behind the counter and he went into this office. Well, that bank teller's going to know whose office that is. But as the police put all of those details together, they will be able to recount what took place, what happened. And as each author wrote their gospel under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, they wrote down exactly what God wanted them to write down called the inspiration of scripture they wrote down everything that god wanted them to write down and every word that they wrote down is true and it is accurate it's all true and it's all accurate and then when we read each account we can then put all of them together to get a complete picture of what took place right in fact, we do this with books that are called a harmony of the gospel. We blend Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John all together to show how they fit seamlessly together. And that what these authors wrote down does not contradict one another. There are no contradictions. 
but they all complement each other and they all line up in detail. In fact, one commentator says of the Gospels, these four are in perfect harmony with each other because the infallible Holy Spirit is the divine author who inspired and guided all four writers into all truth. Each is an inerrant record that can be harmonized with the others down to the smallest details. A harmony of the Gospels. This morning, I want us to look at the Gospel accounts and their details of the resurrection and show how the Gospel writers and the Apostle Paul weren't believing a lie. As the unbelieving critics claim, But what they believed was the truth. It was accurate. And it is true down to every little detail. It's all true. And not only was it the truth, but this truth matters. It matters. In fact, it is vital and of utmost importance to us. This truth of the resurrection. Why does the truth of the resurrection matter? Well, just hold tight, and I'll tell you in just a minute why it matters. But first, what I want us to do this morning, I want to give you four key details about the resurrection account. Four key details about the resurrection account that are given to us in all four Gospels to help us understand this truth of the resurrection. And then I'll tell you why it matters. So let's look at four key details about the resurrection. And as we look at these details, each of these details is found in all four of the Gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And I'll have us focus this morning on the account and the details in Matthew. In Matthew. And then I will read for us what the other gospel writers had to say about that account as well. So turn over in your Bibles to Matthew 27. Matthew chapter 27. And as we come to Matthew 27, we're going to see our first detail here. Detail number one is that the death of Christ was real. Our first detail is that the death of Christ was real. Look at Matthew 27 and verse 62. Notice what it says there. Now on the next day, the day after the preparation, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered together with Pilate and said, Sir, we remember that when he was still alive, that deceiver said, After three days I'm going to rise again. Notice that the chief priests and the Pharisees acknowledge that Jesus is what? He's dead. That Jesus was dead. They said there in verse 63, when he was still alive, which means he's no longer alive. He's dead. They know this to be true. It's a fact. 
Then in Mark 15, you don't have to turn there, but in Mark 15, Joseph of Arimathea came and asked for the body of Jesus. And in Mark 15, 44, Mark tells us this, Pilate wondered if he was dead by this time, and summoning the centurion, he questioned him as to whether he was already dead. And ascertaining this from the centurion, he granted the body to Joseph. Joseph comes into town and he wants the body of Christ so that he can give Jesus a proper burial. And as he comes into town, he asks Pilate for the body of Christ. Pilate doesn't know whether he's dead yet or not. So Pilate asks the centurion who was there whether he was already dead. And ascertaining from this, he granted the body to Joseph. Meaning what? What did the centurion tell him? He's dead. That Jesus is dead. In Luke's account, Luke 23, 53, Luke tells us this. And he, Joseph, took it down, that is the body of Jesus, and wrapped it in a linen cloth and laid him in a tomb cut into the rock where no one had ever lain. It was the preparation day, and the Sabbath was about to begin. Now the women who had come with him out of Galilee followed and saw the tomb and how his body was laid. Luke tells us that these women had been following. They watched what Joseph did, that Joseph went and he took the body down off of the cross. He wrapped the body in linen cloth, and the women were watching on as Jesus or as Joseph took Jesus' body to the tomb and laid it in the tomb. And they saw Jesus' body laying there in that tomb. Now, if Jesus was still alive, would Joseph have taken the body down and wrapped it in cloth? No. Jesus was dead. Then John tells us in John 19 how the soldiers came to break the legs of the men hanging on the cross to speed up their death so that they can be off the cross on the Sabbath. The Sabbath was about to come, and are Jews allowed to do work on the Sabbath? They can't. So they got to get the bodies down. They have to die and be off the cross by Sabbath. And John tells us in verse 33 of John 19, says this, but coming to Jesus, when they, that is the Roman soldiers, when they saw that he, Jesus, was already dead, they did not break his legs. Which was prophesied, by the way, right? They wouldn't break a bone of his body. But they come to Jesus there on the cross. They don't have to break his legs. Why? He's already dead. Jesus is dead. Why is this an important detail for us to know? Well, in order to have a resurrection, you first have to have what? A death. You have to have a death in order to have a resurrection. You see, this is an important detail to know because there was an early heresy called docetism that denied the full humanity of Christ early on early early heresy right after the death and resurrection of Jesus here comes heretics heresy to deny 
the full humanity of Christ. Some forms of docetism taught that Jesus only had a heavenly body of some type, but not a real, natural body of flesh like you and I. And the hardcore docetists, they believed that Jesus was only an illusion who appeared to be human, but had no body at all. That was their view. That's what they taught. And so if they think that Jesus was simply just an illusion, what do they deny? The resurrection. They deny the resurrection. They would deny that Jesus was really dead, and they deny the resurrection. Listen, do you see what the unbelievers and the heretics attack? What do they attack? They attack the gospel. They attack the heart of the gospel, the foundation of the gospel. And here it is the death and the resurrection of Jesus. That's what they go after. And if Jesus didn't have a physical body, then he didn't have a real death. And therefore, if he doesn't have a real death, he wouldn't be resurrected. And we should just all pack up and go home. They taught that Jesus was not resurrected. But, as we just saw from the four gospel accounts, Jesus did die. He had a real physical human body like you and I, and he died. It's an important detail to know. Our Savior died on that cross. The death of Christ was real. And this is an important detail for us to know. Let's look at our second detail. Detail number two. Number two, the tomb of Christ was empty. The tomb of Christ was empty. Turn over to Matthew 28. Matthew chapter 28. We read this in our Scripture reading this morning. Notice in Matthew 28 and verse 5, it says this, The angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you're looking for Jesus who has been crucified. He is not here, for he has risen, just as he said. Come, see the place where he was lying. The angel tells the women to come and look inside the tomb. Come and look. See for yourself. See the place where he was lying. And did the women know where he was lying? They did because they followed Joseph to the tomb to see where Jesus' body was laid. But the tomb was empty. The tomb was empty. Mark tells us in Mark 16.5, Entering the tomb, they, that is the women, Mary Magdalene, Mary, the mother of James, and Salome, they saw a young man sitting at the right wearing a white robe, and they were amazed. And he said to them, Do not be amazed. You're looking for Jesus the Nazarene who has been crucified. He has risen. He is not here. Behold, here is the place where they laid him. 
Here it is. Again, they see inside the tomb, and the angel tells them that they're looking for Jesus, who has been crucified, which means he was dead, but he has risen. He's risen. He wasn't in the tomb. The tomb was empty. Then in Luke, Luke tells us in Luke 24, 2, And they, that is the women, found the stone rolled away from the tomb. And when they entered, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. Luke tells us they then entered the tomb, but the body of Jesus was gone. They didn't find him there. The tomb was empty. Then in John's gospel, in John 20, in verse 6, John tells us, and so Simon Peter also came following him, that is the apostle John. Peter came following the apostle John and entered the tomb. And he saw the linen wrappings lying there and the face cloth which had been on his head, not lying with the linen wrappings, but rolled up in a place by itself. John and Peter arrive at the tomb and they all find, they both find this face cloth and this linen wrapping there that Joseph had used to wrap Jesus' body in. That's all they find there. There's no body. Why? Because the tomb was empty. The tomb was empty. And why was the tomb empty? It was empty because of a divine miracle. This was a divine miracle. It wasn't empty because someone came and stole the body of Jesus away. The tomb was empty because Jesus conquered death and rose again. And the tomb is empty. In fact, since you're already in Matthew 28, look over at verse 11. Notice what it says there. Now while they were on their way, some of the guard came into the city and reported to the chief priests all that had happened. And when they had assembled with the elders and consulted together, they gave a large sum of money to the soldiers and said, you are to say his disciples came by night and stole him away while they were asleep. And if this should come to the governor's ears, we will win him over and keep you out of trouble. Don't worry, we got your back here. And then in verse 15, and they took the money and did as they had been instructed. And this story was widely spread among the Jews and is to this day. Now look at this. Look at this passage here. You have the Roman guards who don't go and tell Pilate, their boss. They don't go and tell him. Who do they go and tell the chief priests and the elders. Who's that? The Jewish leaders. They don't go to the Roman governor. They go to the Jewish leaders. And they tell them what had happened. What do they tell the chief priests? They tell them that the body is gone. That Jesus isn't there. So what do the chief priests do? They come up with a lie. 
They come up with a lie to try and explain how the tomb is empty. Now notice this. I want you to notice this. Notice that the chief priests don't deny the resurrection. They don't deny it. They don't say to the guards, I don't believe you. You've got to be kidding me. I need to go and see for myself. The body of Jesus is gone? Yeah, that's right. It's gone. Mm. (laughs) It's gone. They don't deny it. They know that the body is gone. And they come up with a lie for the Roman guards in case someone asks them what took place, what happened. If someone asks you what happened, they, that is the guards, are to say, you are to say, his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. That's the story that you are to tell people. But let me ask you this. How would they know that the disciples came and stole the body away if they're asleep? You see, even their own lie doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense. How do you guys know? You were asleep. How do you know it wasn't the chief priests and the elders who came and stole the body away? How do you know it was his disciples? You guys were asleep. Their lie doesn't even make sense. But that's the story that was spread. And even though it was a lie, that was the story that they told because the tomb was empty. The tomb was empty. And so not only is the death of Christ real, and the tomb of Christ was empty, but let me give you a third detail. Detail number three, the explanation of Christ was angelic. The explanation of Christ was angelic. We read it earlier, but notice again in Matthew 28 and verse 5, when the women arrive at the tomb, who is there to greet them? Notice what it says there. Matthew 28 and verse 5, The angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you're looking for Jesus who has been crucified. He is not here, for he is risen, just as he said. Come, see the place where he was lying. It was angels that first announced the resurrection of Jesus. It was angels who announced that the tomb was empty. In fact, Mark tells us in Mark 16:5, entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting at the right wearing a white robe, and they were amazed. Why? Because he's an angel. And in verse 6, he said to them, do not be amazed. The angel says to these women, do not be amazed. You're looking for Jesus the Nazarene who's been crucified. He has risen. He is not here. Behold, here is the place where they laid him. Who was that young man that's sitting there at the right wearing a white robe? It wasn't Jesus. It was an angel. It was an angel. 
Now, Mark only focuses on the one angel because he's the one who does the talking. But we know that there were two angels who were there. In fact, listen to Luke's account in Luke 24 and verse 4. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men suddenly stood near them in dazzling clothing. And as the women were terrified and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living one among the dead? He is not here, but he has risen. Two angels. And even John tells us in John 20, 11, that Mary Magdalene, after going and telling the disciples that Jesus had risen, she came back to the tomb. And it says this in John 20, 11, but Mary was standing outside the tomb weeping. And so as she wept, she stooped and looked into the tomb and she saw two angels in white sitting, one at the head and one at the feet where the body of Jesus had been lying. And they said to her, woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, because they have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. It was angels who announced the resurrection of Jesus. Now, why is this important to know? Why is it important to know that it was angels who announced the resurrection of Christ? Well, let me ask you this. Can angels lie? Can angels tell a lie? They can't. Angels cannot lie. That's the difference between them and demons or fallen angels. Demons are of Satan who is the father of lies. And there is no salvation for them. None. They're doomed to eternal destruction. Eternal damnation. But angels are God's elect angels who were created perfect and have always been perfect. This is where our angelology comes in. It's important to know the doctrine of angelology. It's important. They're God's elect angels created perfect and they've always been created perfect. And because they are perfect beings, they cannot lie. They can't lie. In fact, Paul tells us in Galatians 1.8, But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to what we have preached to you, he is to be accursed. Now Paul in Galatians 1 is being hypothetical there. It's hypothetical. Because neither he nor an angel from heaven would ever preach a false gospel. They wouldn't. Right? The Apostle Paul, we have his writings. He never preached a false gospel. The angels always tell the truth. Can they preach a false gospel? No, they can't. But what Paul is saying there is that even if it were possible for the angels to come from heaven and preach to you a false gospel, they are to be accursed. But he's being hypothetical there because he's, he knows his angelology tells him angels cannot lie. They could not preach a false gospel 
and they can't speak anything contrary to the truth. They always tell the truth. Angels cannot lie. And when they come and announce that Jesus is not in the tomb because he is risen from the dead, that is the truth. That's the truth. Because they can't lie. And the testimony of these angels proves to us that the, t- the tomb was empty and Jesus rose from the dead. He's alive. And so not only was the death of Christ real and the tomb of Christ was empty, the explanation of Christ was angelic, but finally, detail number four, the followers of Christ were doubtful. The followers of Christ were doubtful. This is an amazing detail because it puts all of this into humble perspective. You see, the gospel writers are not afraid to tell the truth. Even if it might seem to look bad, they always tell the truth. In fact, look at Matthew 28 and verse 16. Notice what Matthew tells us there. Verse 16, But the eleven disciples proceeded to Galilee, to the mountain which Jesus had designated. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some were what? Doubtful. Some were doubtful. Now, who are these doubtful disciples? Who are these doubtful ones? Well, notice that this is Jesus in Galilee, which means he has been resurrected, he has left Jerusalem, and is now meeting these disciples on a mountain in Galilee. He's there in Galilee. And if you were to trace the life of Christ after his resurrection and before his ascension, which was 40 days after his resurrection, right? That's when Christ ascended to heaven, 40 days after his resurrection. If we were to put all of these details together, we would put this event here on this mountain in Galilee sometime between 20 and 35 days after his resurrection. Sometime between 20 and 35 days after the resurrection of Christ. And although the 11 are there at this time, there were also more disciples than just the 11 who were there on this mountain. It's not only the 11 that are, the 11 are there. Why not 12? Judas is dead, hung himself. So you have 11. The 11 are there, but you have more than the 11 that are there. Jesus, remember, he had more disciples than just the 12. There were more people that followed him than just the 12. And you have all of these disciples that are there then on this mountain. We don't know how many, but some scholars believe that this was the group of more than 500 that Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians 15, 6. Where it says there that Jesus appeared to more than 500. This is possibly the account. But you have all of these people here on this mountain, and Jesus is about to give them the great commission. And they see him, but some doubted. But some doubted. This here is not referring to the eleven. 
Jesus has already appeared multiple times to the eleven by this point. But it's referring to the, the greater disciples. The greater group of disciples that were there. Those from the larger group of disciples. They doubted. And what was their doubt? Well, they probably couldn't believe that Jesus was standing there in front of them. Was this man an imposter? Is it really Jesus? There was doubt of the resurrected Christ. And that shouldn't surprise us because even his own disciples, the eleven, didn't understand the resurrection of Christ right away. In fact, Mark tells us about their confusion over the resurrection of Jesus in Mark chapter 9. In Mark 9, we read about the transfiguration of Jesus when Jesus brings Peter, James, and John up with him and showed them his glory. You remember that? The Mount of Transfiguration. Peter, James, and John, they go with Jesus up on the mountain. Jesus is transfigured there and he shows them his glory. And as they're coming down from the mountain, here's what Mark tells us. In Mark 9, 9, it says this. As they were coming down from the mountain, he, Jesus, gave them orders not to relate to anyone what they had seen until the Son of Man rose from the dead. Puts a timeline on it. Don't tell anybody anything, that's, that, anything that you've seen, anything that has taken place here on this mountain, until the Son of Man has risen from the dead. And then in Mark chapter 9 and verse 10, it says this, They, that is the disciples, seized upon that statement, discussing with one another what rising from the dead meant. What does he mean by this? Jesus is going to rise from the dead? Now, these men understood what a resurrection was. It wasn't their confusion. They understood what a resurrection was. They had seen Jesus bring people back from the dead, right? They witnessed resurrections. They knew what resurrection was. And they understood from the Old Testament that there was a general resurrection. We read this in Daniel chapter 12. And they knew their Old Testament. There's a general resurrection. So they understand resurrection. But in their theology, they didn't have a resurrection of the Messiah. They don't have a resurrection of the Messiah because they don't have a dead Messiah. Not in their theology. As Jews, in their theology, when the Messiah comes, what does he do? He establishes his throne, he sets up his kingdom, and he conquers Rome. He gets rid of Rome. And he establishes his kingdom. And Israel rules and reigns. With Christ on his throne. That was their understanding of Messiah. In their theology, they didn't have a dead Messiah. And therefore, if you don't have a dead Messiah, you don't have a what? A risen Messiah. They don't have a resurrection of the Messiah. They didn't understand it. In fact, remember when Jesus tried to tell them again and again that he's going to die and rise again? 
tells them again and again, and they didn't understand it. And even Peter comes and he tries to rebuke Jesus. Well, he does rebuke Jesus. And what does Jesus tell him? Get behind me, Satan. I am going to die, and I am going to rise again on the third day. But you see, they didn't understand it. Because they don't have a dead Messiah, and therefore they don't have a resurrected Messiah. So a resurrection wasn't in their theology. Then Luke tells us, in Luke 24.10, now, they were Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary the mother of James. Also the other women with them were telling these things to the apostles. They had gone and they had seen the tomb. They had heard the message from the angel. They were then told to go and tell the apostles and the women go and tell the apostles. But listen to what it says in Luke 24, 11. But these words appeared to them, that is to the apostles, as nonsense. Nonsense. And they would not believe them. The apostles would not believe the women. The women arrived to tell the eleven what had happened at the tomb and that the tomb was empty. And what do the eleven do? They didn't believe them. They doubted. They thought it was silly talk that these women were making up. Now we know that Jesus is dead. He died on a cross. We saw that. And now you're here to tell us that he rose again? Oh, that's nonsense. It's silly talk. John even tells us that after the women told them this news of the resurrection, that John and Peter run to the tomb to go see if it was true. Because they didn't believe him. We're going to have to go and see for ourselves. And in John 20 and verse 8, it says this, So the other disciple who had first come to the tomb, that is John, John was faster than Peter. They were in a race, John wins. Then also entered, John entered, and he saw and believed. For as yet, they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. They didn't understand it because it wasn't in their theology, right? This is rocking their theology. A dead Savior and now a risen Savior? John believed that Jesus had risen when he saw the empty tomb. But he didn't understand the scriptures which said that Jesus must rise again from the dead. Now why is this detail important? Why is this important for us? This is important because it shows that the disciples did not come up with a plan to try and get Jesus out of the tomb and stage a resurrection. Remember the lie that was being told? That lie couldn't have been true because even his own disciples didn't believe in the resurrection. They doubted. They didn't stage a resurrection. No, the resurrection of Jesus is a real resurrection and the tomb is empty. You see, these details are important. 
details are important. In closing, why are these details of the resurrection of Christ important for us to know? Why does this matter? I'll tell you why. Because if you don't believe in the resurrection of Jesus, you cannot be saved. You can't be saved. This is a foundational truth of the gospel without which believing this, there is no salvation for you. You must believe this. Paul said in Romans 10.9 that if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. You must believe that God raised Him from the dead in order to be saved. It's so important. Now, turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians 15. 1 Corinthians 15. This is Paul's letter to the church at Corinth. And he wants to make known to this church the gospel which he preached to them. The gospel which he received and the gospel in which the church stands upon. And he says this, look at verse 3. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 3. He says, For I delivered to you as of first, what? Importance. Church, do you see how important this is to know? Paul says this is of first importance. What I also received. Notice what he says. That Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that He was buried, and that He was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, and that He appeared to Cephas and then to the Twelve. What is Paul saying here? Oh, this is of utmost importance you must know this this is the gospel message that jesus died for our sins that he was buried and that he raised again on the third day you must know that and you must preach that and you must believe it in order to be saved it is of utmost importance Look down at verse 16. Notice what Paul says, 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 16. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. And you are still in your sins. If Jesus Christ did not raise from the dead, if the tomb is not empty, we are all still in our sins and our faith is worthless. It means nothing. In fact, in verse 14, he says, and if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is also in vain. Essentially, he's saying, just pack it up and go home. If Jesus didn't raise again on the third day. But what is the truth, church? Did he raise again on the third day? 
Yes, he did. Yes, he did. He was raised on the third day and our faith is not worthless, but our faith is in Christ. We believe upon Christ who died for our sins and was buried and rose again on the third day and he lives today as he sits at the right hand of the Father. He's alive. Our Savior is alive. The truth is Christ has been raised. He died a real death. The tomb is empty. The angels announced it. And although the disciples once doubted, they believed it and they preached it. And because of this great truth of the death and resurrection of Jesus, there is hope of an eternity with him for all who repent of their sins and trust in Christ alone. That's the gospel message. And if you're here this morning and you have not done that, I urge you to do that today. To turn from your sin and trust in Christ alone who came died on a cross for your sin and was buried, but who didn't stay dead, who rose again on the third day. And because he lives today, he offers you the free gift of eternal life. And all you must do is run to him. Run to Christ. And you will be saved. If you're here and you have not done that, I urge you to do that today. May today be the day of salvation for you. Listen, church. The resurrection is true. It is true. And it's important. And we rejoice today because our Savior is risen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this glorious truth. The glorious truth of the resurrection of our Lord and Savior who went to a cross and bore our sins on that cross. Who died for us and made a payment for us that none of us could make. Father, we thank you for your plan of redemption and for sending your Son to be the sacrifice for our sins. Father, I pray that we would remember this day always, remembering the importance of the resurrection of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Father, I do pray for anyone who is here this morning that does not know you. I pray that you would grant them the gift of repentance and faith that they would trust in you, that they would be saved this Resurrection Sunday, that they would remember this day as a special day in their life because it's the day that you saved them. And for those of us who have been saved, Father, help us to live in light of this great truth and go and preach this great truth to the world that the lost might hear the good news of the gospel and be saved. And may it all be for your glory. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.